Good morning. How are you? Um, I'm going to talk for about three or four minutes, and then my friend Chris Matthews and I are going to sit down. We're going to have a conversation about the world. But what I wanted to... It wasn't a joke. It was serious. Uh, what, what I wanted to talk to you about up front is uh, I looked at your bios on the way out here from the airport, and it is one of the most remarkable group of men and women that I've ever seen in my life. And I wanted to tell you that I think you're enormously privileged. You're privileged because you've all gotten great educations, you got great families, they made great sacrifices. Everybody in this room has a responsibility to serve his or her world in some way, to serve something bigger than yourself. You know, I got in this business in a very funny way. My mom and dad were Greek immigrants. My mom escaped Albania as the border was closing on a British submarine. She never saw her family again. My father came to the United States just before the Great Depression without a nickel in his pocket. We came here and they educated two boys and one made something of himself. He became a doctor and I became the director of CIA. <laughs> but what I want you to know, what I want you to think about is, you know, Tom Friedman wrote something, the world is flat. If you haven't read it, I want you to go read it. He wrote something that's really important. He says, imagination is more important than knowledge. I want you to lead lives where you imagine that it is unacceptable that a billion people in the world are malnourished, where it is unacceptable that three million people died of AIDS last year, where it is unacceptable that people are defiling a beautiful religion called Islam and revert to violence. I want you to imagine that you can transform people's lives where they celebrate life and they don't celebrate violence. I want you to think about the fact that you should be an international public servant, a teacher, a missionary, a doctor, a public servant, somebody who serves in the military or the intelligence community. You have an enormous obligation to give something back to a world that's giving you the opportunity to sit at the damn St. Regis Hotel and be treated like you were Donald Trump. Okay? So. Uh, and the other thing about this is your generation, human capital is now fungible. If you look around this room, we have all colors, all ethnicities, all religions. You will work together in ways that countries don't work together today. I want you to understand that it's not just about technology, but it's about what's in your soul. It's the soulful interaction of your ideas and your thoughts when they're blended together in a way that the world can act on issues in nanoseconds that will make a real difference in the world. So my message is pure, purely simple. I mean, Chris and I, Chris is gonna come up here, we're gonna have some fun. And I've never been on a show, I'm never going on a show, it's dangerous. Uh, and I originally was supposed to give you a big talk, but the talk is if somebody like me, somebody like me whose parents were immigrants, can grow up to be the director of central intelligence, you can do anything you want. And the beauty of the country I call my home America is it could only happen here. It's about hard work, it's about passion, it's about your integrity, it's about waking up every day and believing you can do good. I worked with the most courageous men and women that you will never meet, never meet them. They operate on the streets of Baghdad and Beirut, places in the world you'll never go. They stand up every day and take risks, and they tell you the truth 
whether they were right or wrong, because we believe as a culture never breaking faith with our people is our most important obligation. If everybody told the truth in this country, we'd all be better off. So let's go, Chris. Here we go. Thank you very much. Please welcome special guest of the Academy from MSNBC Hardball, Chris Matthews, to lead the discussion. How are you, Chris? Any, uh, there's no reporters here. Uh, uh, Truth-telling, how did we get it wrong with the WMD in Iraq? Well, as I say... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you find it funny. Um, look, uh, I, I'm very candid about the fact that when we look at ourselves in the mirror when the stakes were highest, we didn't live up to our professional standards. I would say that, you know, we spent, I, you know, I used to be the CEO of a big company. I probably spent a couple hundred hours looking at everything we wrote and what we understood. And I think at the end of the day, we got captive of history. We got captive of a UN inspection regime that really eroded over the course of time. We and all our foreign colleagues believed that he continued these programs. There was a certainty about which we've, we expressed ourselves that I think was the major flaw. Let me ask you about the one thing I think a, a lot of people here worry about, whatever their sentiments are toward this country, or the West, uh, or the war in Iraq. The American people, it seemed to me, watching this as a typical person, was that the nuclear peace is what drove the war. The sense that they might have a nuclear weapon that might threaten us strategically, not our friends in the region, all that, so blah, yeah. blah, blah, but a strategic threat to us. When you've heard that, uh, when the vice president asked about whether uh, Saddam Hussein was buying uh, nuclear materials from Niger, Niger, uh, and you sent Joe Wilson down there to check on it, did the vice president ever respond to that? And if so, why not? Because that found its way into the president's State of the Union. That they well, had a nuclear threat, that they were buying nuclear materials from Africa. Yeah, well, let me, let me just say that, first of all, as you know, Chris, it should never have gotten in the president's speech in the State of the Union. Why didn't the VP stop it? Just, oh, let me give you, just, this, what's the name of your show, Crossfire? No, it's not Crossfire, it's something else. Uh, look, look, look. It's the Can same you, business we're all in, the truth. Right. Well, let me, yeah, I'm in the truth. You need to understand that it's, and I, I'm going to talk about me here. Okay. The same language was in the Cincinnati speech, and I, I leaned in and took that language out of the speech. Okay? And not only did I lean in, I sent a memo downtown to say, here are the reasons why you should not put this in the speech. I didn't read the State of the Union speech, made a mistake. And all I can say is, is I had to take responsibility for the fact that as the director of central intelligence, it was our job to say, do not put this in the speech. So on one level, I can only tell you what I'm responsible for. The vice it was president our raised the question. He, you sent a, a former ambassador down to Joe Wilson. He comes back. The vice president's informed, obviously, that there was no Niger deal. How come that the information from him didn't go into the president's speech and say, pull out those 16 words? You know, let's get, you know, you'd have to ask him to sit here with you and talk to you about it, but I don't think He's a harder I, guest to get than no, you. No, no, but, I think, but, I, but I, I think it's a bit unfair, I have to tell you, I, I think it's a bit unfair to stick this all on him. There's a whole How process. How about the chief of staff, Scooter Libby? There's a whole process around speech writing that's involved here, mm -hmm. so let's, let's be fair about you know, okay. how we think about this. So that was what was on my mind. Okay, good. But it is on my mind, the whole nuclear piece, because I Well, think, let me say, can let I me say ask you about WMD. I can't, I can't. The, the big question, the WMD question, forget the biological yeah. dirty bombs, right. the whole thing. It's the nuclear piece that scared the hell out of a lot of Americans. Why did you think Saddam Hussein 
had a nuclear weapons program? Well, we said, first of all, Chris, it's important that you go read the estimate on the website. We said that we believed it would take him five to seven years to develop a nuclear weapon. We believe that he was reconstituting, reconstituting a program, but we put the five to seven year judgment on that piece. And the thing that principally, the thing that principally concerned our analysts after that was, remember 1991? In 1991, we had written that the Iraqis were eight or nine years away from nuclear capability, when in fact they were months away. And when analysts looked at the confluence of activity, his extensive procurement network, what it was buying, the things that they'd reconstituted, our concern was he's reconstituted a program. The intelligence community never said he had a weapon. We didn't. But the, but the tubes and the yellow cake weren't true, were they? Well, the tubes, if you look at the tubes, now we, we now we go back and go through the tubes, you gotta understand something about the tubes. We had a very vigorous debate about tubes, both in the estimate and within the intelligence community. We had a red team on one side of DOE national experts look at us and say, the tubes were for nuclear capability. We had a differing point of view. There was a big division. That division was played out in the estimate for everybody to see, and if you go back and look at people's speeches and how we talked about it, we told people about the differentiation of views. We didn't hide the bacon on the fact that there was a dispute. We set it up front. Yeah. So, you know, now, if you, if, if, you, if you look at the 19, this is where history matters. The, the, analysts that wrote these, the analysts that wrote these estimates collectively had hundreds of years of experience looking at Iraq. They had no political motivation or agenda. The guy that wrote the estimate, the National Intelligence Officer, actually came to me before the estimative process started. He says, you know, I'm not for the war. I said, Bob, it doesn't matter what you're for or against. Write your estimate. So in the business that we live in, in the uncertainties that we choose, now I've worked for Democrats and Republicans. I've seen them both make choices. I've seen them both calculate risks. I've seen them both assess history and our certainty and the fact that the UN inspections were going nowhere. But Chris, I want you to understand something else. Here's, here's the other thing that confounds us to this day. If you go back and look at David Kay's first report, look yeah. at the things he found that the Iraqis never declared. Look at the fact that what we said about missiles was dead right in terms of what he was doing. Yeah. Look at what he was doing with the oil for food program in terms of setting up suppliers for things that he couldn't acquire the moment where sanctions were lifted to basically put his weapons capability back on track. So if I wrote the estimate again today with the benefit of hindsight, I would have said, Iraq has the capability to produce chemical and biological weapons within a matter of months and or a year and the means to deliver them. And that's an accurate statement based on everything that we've learned. The policymakers then confronted with a bit more sophisticated conundrum, but not much more in the sense of take the stockpiles off the table, because we thought they were there. Yeah. And the other thing that bothers me is, is if you look, Bill Broad, the New York Times, about a month and a half ago, wrote this terrific piece that none of you followed that said, none of you paid attention to that said, and David Kaye said the same thing, there was systematic, coherent destruction and dismantling of facilities pre during and after the war, and there are things gone that are inexplicable to us, and we will never know because those facilities were never protected at the front end. There is a big, in my mind, an enigma, not that I would say to you I, I expect to find it, but there's a lot of data that walked out of that country that I'd sure like to know in terms of yeah. how far they were along. The risk calculus, ultimately, for the politician is, how much risk do you want to take? Do you want to let it run? 
Do you not want to let it run? Yeah. Make your choices. Here's our best judgment. Our biggest shortcoming in this estimate was the certainty of our language, the assertive tone that the language took. And if I had one thing to do over again, it would have been, you know, a few maybes, probably's, could be's, and a little bit more nuance in our understanding may have made this a little bit more difficult to just be as assertive as we were. Tough question, but the influence of the uh, civilians in the Defense Department, the Vice President's office, all the hawks in the administration, including the President, did they put their thumb on the scale? They never put their thumb on the WMD estimate in any way, shape, or form. Okay, let's talk about some figures in the world. I want to get the questions, but the way my wife and I, is Kathleen here? There she is. She actually had a brilliant idea. She said, act like I'm speaking for all these people here, these brilliant people. And the kinds of questions, if you had 20 minutes with the director of the CIA, would, you would want to know if you were a man or a woman that wanted to be the next president of the United States. Where, wanted... Where's Elvis? Okay, no, no. <laughs> Since you asked, no. UFOs. You know where Elvis was? He was here last night, actually. He spoke for about a half hour. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> and he was great. Okay. Uh, yeah, we're not there yet. Okay, do your thing. Um, Kim Young Il, is he a whack job? You know, where I grew up in Queens, we used to talk like that, but we don't talk like that. Okay, is no. he a man of sanity? Um, I think he's. I think he's smarter than people give him credit for. And if you look at what he's doing, what is the strategy? The strategy is create a crisis by whatever means I can to force a bilateral negotiation with the United States. What is he, what's his objective? He wants to be the Musharraf of Northeast Asia. He knows that nuclear capability confers upon you a legitimacy and a, and a seat at the table, and he wants to get us to the table. Now, the negotiating strategy can't be once he violates the 1994 agreement and the American intelligence community catches him pursuing a uranium-based approach to a nuclear weapon, the approach can't be, think, think of it as a business deal or anything you've ever done in your life, let's go sit down and talk to somebody who's just cheated on a treaty. But he knows exactly what he's doing. He understands the attitudes in the South are different than they once were. And he, and he postulates that the way I legitimize my regime is the way the Indians did, Pakistanis did, and every, anybody that showed up with a nuke, and the world will come to me and bestow economic benefits, and therefore I will survive, notwithstanding the fact that I'm starving my people and life here is absolutely hell. Okay, risk assessment, would he use a weapon? No, he would not use a weapon. I mean, even, I mean, I think what he will do is, is over the course of time, if you look at what he's done over the last year, he threw the inspectors out. He says he's reprocessed the fuel rods. He now is intimating that he may test. For all I know, I didn't see the intelligence. They may have showed it to us okay. intentionally to stimulate the crisis. He was the lead story, far right-hand column of the New York Times that morning. He achieved his objective because all we talked about was him for two days. That's what he wants.